1: Hello everyone, welcome back to the Warfare Podcast. I'm your host James Rogers and this week I'm on the move. I'm in the UK filming a new TV series for History Hit on The Blitz. So keep your eyes peeled for that, coming to History Hit TV soon. This episode though takes us way further back in history before the Second World War to the Irish Revolution. And this was suggested by one of our listeners, Seamus. I've been going on about our listener suggestions week on week, saying, send in what it is that you want to hear. And Seamus did exactly
2: that. Hi, Seamus here. Love the show. It's a fantastic use of history. As an Irish subscriber to the show, I'd love to hear more content on the Irish War of Independence and the subsequent Irish Civil War. Also, it'd be interesting to know the British perspective of the struggle for independence and the subsequent Civil War. Thanks very much looking forward to hearing it.
1: Bye bye. We have world expert Professor Fergal McGarry on the podcast from Queen's University Belfast, who places this struggle for independence into the broader international context. Enjoy. Hi, Fergal. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today?
2: I'm doing good. Thanks for the invitation to come on, James.
1: Not a problem at all. We've looked at the Irish Revolutionary period tangentially on this podcast, but I really wanted to dig deep into the Irish Revolution, which I would say traditionally I've seen as being quite a localised conflict within the bounds of the island of Ireland and, of course, broadly within Great Britain as well. But when we look at your research, we start to see that this just isn't the case at all. You can, of course, make the links between the Irish diaspora in the United States, and that's something that has played a pivotal role in Irish-British relations for over a 100 years. But there's far more to the internationalisation of this conflict, isn't there, Fergal? Maybe you can give us a little bit of uh, an introduction into what extent this Irish revolutionary period is more of an international struggle.
3: Yeah, I
2: think that's right, James. I think we probably do think of certain periods of Republican violence as being very international. For example, the struggle of the provisional IRA had all sorts of obvious international dimensions in terms of where they were active and where they were funded and so on. Indeed, a stretch across the world brings in places for America, obviously very important places like arms from Libya and then bombing campaigns in Britain and so on. And that's also true of earlier Republican campaigns, even going back to the late 19th century, I think the Athenian bombing campaign in London. You're right that we do tend to think of the War of Independence between 1919 and 21 as something that's very much rooted in Ireland and indeed very much rooted in the Irish countryside. You know, we have an image of uh, flying columns, you know, groups of guerrilla volunteers in a rural kind of war zone. But I think, and this is very much what the research project that I've been working on for the last few years in this book is one of the main outcomes of this project. I think we need to understand the context of that struggle in very international ways. And maybe it's useful to set the scene by thinking a little bit about how this period in 1919, 1920 is a period of tumult across much of the world. And again, I think you know, people in Britain certainly probably think of 1918 as well, that's the year when the conflict comes to an end. But of course, things look very different from other parts of the world. So, if we think about, you know, Central and Eastern Europe, I mean, mass violence continues, but it's very different forms of violence. It's basically nationalist and class violence which comes about as a result of the collapse of empires. And it's a very kind of chaotic, very high levels of violence across Central and Eastern Europe. But even if we look further afield across the world, and there would have been a consciousness of this in Britain in 1919, there's a lot of imperial violence. British officers would talk about what's happening in 1919 as an imperial crisis. You've got violence in the Middle East. You've got violent disturbances in India and so on. So I suppose one of the things we wanted to do in our project was to think about the violence in Ireland between 1919 and 21, which is normally told about in this very national or, you know, Indo-Irish context, and thinking about the connections between it and what's happening in other parts of the world, whether in Europe or further afield. And one of the things that's interesting is that even though it's not remembered, perhaps, in these contexts, actors at the time, both revolutionaries and imperialists, were really conscious of these kind of comparisons. So you've got figures like Sir Henry Wilson, for example, the professional head of the British Army. And he draws strong connections between Bolshevism emanating from Russia and infecting many other places, labour unrest in Britain, anti-colonial violence across the British Empire, and what's going on in Ireland. And even almost kind of conspiratorial point, imagining that there are perhaps more connections between all of these things than actually exist. If you look at somewhere like America, too, and perhaps there's less of a memory of this, I mean, 1919 is a very kind of radical period. You've got red scares, uh, you've got race riots and so on. So there is this sense that the world has been turned upside down by the First World War. And that's really what we wanted to explore in this book, the importance of those various and very different contexts in terms of what's happening in Ireland, but also how Britain and other parts of the world respond to events in Ireland.
1: So maybe we can try and break this down a little bit then, try and and look at different ways in which this struggle becomes internationalised. Now, you've touched upon this idea of it's politically international. We've got that moment after the First World War where there isn't just the collapse of empires, but there is the deliberate breaking apart of empires as part of the Treaty of Versailles. So we can say that from this moment onwards, especially with the United States becoming a world superpower over this period, that there is a progressive move, but there's also a burst of revolutions and uprisings around the world. So can we safely situate the Irish War of Independence in that kind of colonial moment, the moment of demise of empire, a kind of opportunistic take that now is the time to seek independence?
2: I think because Irish historians have tended to look at the Irish revolution within a kind of a national context, you're sort of drawn to a kind of a chronology of events and a sort of interpretation of events, which is very much rooted in terms of what's happening in Ireland. But if you look for the international, if you look for the transnational and the global, it's remarkable the extent to which it is visible and which it's kind of informing a lot of the actions at the time. So just to give some kind of brief examples, We tend to think of the point of origin of the Irish Revolution as being the Easter 1916 rising, and that's very important in ways that we might discuss. But really, it's not until 1918, 1919, that you begin to get a sort of a popular movement in Ireland, which is fully behind republicanism, behind separatism, and willing to a certain extent even to support a kind of an armed campaign for independence. So that suggests that really the key thing which has shifted is the impact of the First World War. And it's not even the sense that Ireland or the UK is sort of experiencing these pressures because of the impact of total war. I think there's almost something else at work, which is there's a political shift, a political transition that's sweeping much of the world in the wake of the First World War. And that's rooted to a large extent in the idea of Wilsonian self-determination, the idea that not just have empires Fragmented and collapsed across much of the world, but the idea which I think is much more powerful that empires have lost political legitimacy, that the political future that in which power is conceptualised is around the idea of the consent of the government, governed democracy, national self-determination, and so on. So, if you look at, for example, the first time in which Sinn Fein, the new republican movement which emerges after the Easter Rising, they really come to power as an anti-war movement, and it's in the general election of December 1918. That they win an overall kind of majority and you're getting these kind of shifts from a kind of moderate or constitutional nationalism to separatist nationalism taking place across much of Europe, again going back to central and eastern Europe, but also you know in places like India and Egypt and so on. The impact of the First World War has been in a sense to legitimize much more radical interpretations of separatism, republicanism, of independence, so we can almost talk about what happens in Ireland own 1918 and 1919 as being a sort of response to what is perceived as the sort of the decline of the imperial world.
1: So that makes sense. And I can see some kind of clear lines here to draw between a kind of Wilsonianism and his 14 points, and we can touch on those in a little bit. But I'm wondering if there's a more practical issue that we have to deal with here. So I focus on this period in my research in the United States from 1917, 1918, 1919, And there's a public push to make sure the politicians do not take the Americans into a brutal battle into the European old world again. And if they do, it has to be fought very differently, just because the sheer amount of loss of life of the Americans, they said that they'd lost a generation of their youngest, best and brightest. Now... When it comes to the Irish experience, there were around 200,000 Irishmen that fought in the First World War. Is there a kind of drive here to make sure that young Irishmen aren't drawn into and serving for the colonial empire?
2: The wind behind the sails of the Sinn Féin Republican movement is essentially their anti-war position. In 1914, when the First World War breaks out, Irish nationalism is very much dominated by the Home Rule Party or the Irish Parliamentary Party, and they're a very constitutional moderate party and their political aim isn't separatism, it isn't independence. It's merely home rule that there should be some kind of political devolution within the UK to an Irish Parliament. And so one impact of the First World War is to blow that very limited aspiration out of the water. But as I say, the issue that really begins to generate mass popular support for Sinn Fein in nineteen eighteen as their leadership of the anti conscription movement. Now, in terms of how the sort of Irish servicemen figure into that, that's a little bit kind of less straightforward. I mean, large numbers of Irish servicemen are coming back in 1918. And by and large, I think they're part of that shift towards separatism and towards republicanism. There's a really sort of political collapse in the support of the constitutional party. And I think there's a deep seated sort of sense that what's happening to other European nations and other parts of the continent should also apply to Ireland. And you do find lots of examples of ex-servicemen coming back and joining the Irish volunteers and essentially being behind that sort of Push for freedom. I mean, you do also find examples of Republican sort of marginalization of ex servicemen and so on. But by and large, it's such a huge number of people who enlist and come back. I think they generally fall into sort of broader patterns of political responses in this period.
1: And it is a a massive period of revolutionary change and that prime moment to push these political agendas forward. But it isn't just happening within the broader spheres of the British Empire. Other empires are facing challenges around the world as well. And, you know, you look at Richard Over's work and he ties this whole period towards a kind of unavoidable march towards the second great war the second world war and so we're starting to see these struggles emerging on the edges of the japanese empire in your own work have you seen that there's a link let's say between the uprisings in korea against japan and the uprisings that are happening in ireland against the british
2: Yeah, sure. So this book is an edited collection which looks at a number of different kind of global dimensions of the Irish Revolution. It looks at the role of the diaspora. It looks at the role of empire and how empire responds to what's going on. It also looks at connections between different anti-colonial revolutionary groups. But there's also a number of essays that are kind of comparative. And and I look at parallels between March 1st, the Korean uprising in 1919, and the Easter Rising of 1916. But much more broadly, actually, how those two moments lead to a kind of a wider independence struggle, which has some really striking similarities. So March 1st, 1919, in Korea and the Easter Rising in 1916, they both become kind of mythologized as a sort of the foundational moments in the national history of both countries. But in both cases, it's not these events which uh, lead directly to independence, rather that they serve as the kind of the nation's point of origin and sort of historical narratives about how independence was achieved, and particularly in terms of kind of the public memory of independence, to the point both states are very much, the identities are defined by their links with these particular kind of uprisings. And one of the things that strikes me about these parallels is that in some ways they can be misleading, certainly in the Irish case, because it diverts attention from the importance of what's happening in 1918 and 1919. This is really, I think, the key period when you see a kind of a mass radical mobilization and you referred to Overy's work, which is very important. A big point of influence for our work was thinking about Anela's work, looking at the link between Wilsonian self-determination and how that feeds into nationalist and violent and revolutionary uprisings across much of Asia. So across different parts of the world, people are responding to this moment in time, which is rooted in fairly similar fundamental causes. So, I mean, comparative history, I think, centres on Similarities and differences. So, some of the striking similarities between the Irish and Korean efforts to achieve independence. They both declare independence in the spring of 1919, you know, relatively small groups of political activists, but nonetheless, they're important occasions. In both countries, you see the establishment of Republican governments. So that's quite interesting. It's not just a sort of rebellion or an insurrection, but it's actually something more like a claim to national sovereignty, which is kind of interesting, obviously a particular context which facilitates that kind of thinking. In both cases, the Irish and the Koreans send diplomatic envoys to the Paris Peace Conference. So that's the big rationale for a push for independence, the fact that it does seem that many countries across Europe are being given their independence. Why shouldn't other countries who can make you know, pretty much the same claim for independence. Why shouldn't they also be part of that kind of political development? The Koreans and the Irish campaigns are very much rooted in the importance of propaganda and propaganda campaigns that are very outward looking, you know, geared towards international political opinion, the international media. For example, in both cases, Koreans and Irish revolutionaries send envoys to the Paris Peace Conference. They lobby Washington after the effort to secure entry to the Paris Peace Conference fails, In both cases, the Koreans and the Irish mobilise their diaspora, particularly, again, rooted in America, which is obviously the new centre of political power, you know, post-1918, the American century has begun. And also, interestingly, the tactics are even quite similar. So the Irish and the Koreans raise revolutionary bond drives. Again, in America, in both cases, the presidents of these kind of notional or putative Irish and Korean governments travel to America, and you get these kind of presidential tours, which tour places where the diaspora are rooted, and they get a lot of immediate forms. And again, this goes back, I think, this notion of not just fighting for independence, but actually declaring independence as a kind of political reality. It's almost like a performance of sovereignty, which makes for very powerful propaganda. If you look at the declarations of independence between Ireland and Korea, and there's several kind of you know, forms rather than just one. But really they use the same kind of arguments. There's the old arguments of history and culture and civilization that Ireland and Korea are separate countries. But then, and this is kind of, I think, very specific to 1918, 1919, there's arguments for independence that are really rooted in Wilsonian thinking and how political power is now being kind of conceptualized post-war. They talk about, in both cases, actually cite Wilson and Wilson's 14-point speech. But also you get talk about economic liberalism, about free trade, about an international community of equal nations, about how peace can only be assured through a kind of international community rather than through imperial might and power. I mean, there's quite a lot there, but you can see how many similarities there are in terms of not just thinking, but also kind of strategies and methodologies of revolution. And this is between two movements that in which there's really no contact between them. So it just suggests that in this moment, this is how revolutionaries are responding to the opportunities of the post-war period. In terms of differences, I find them also very interesting. So, for example, in terms of levels of violence and suppression that the Japanese and British empires use, there's huge mm-hmm. differences. The Japanese suppression is much more brutal, a much kind of larger kind of loss of life. And that's, I think, related in part to the susceptibility of particular imperial states to international pressure. Britain is very conscious that the eyes of the world are upon it, and there's a resultingly a kind of restraint in how it behaves in Ireland. I think it relates also to relative diasporic influences. The Irish, in many respects, are one of the most high-profile and best connected revolutionary movements in this kind of global moment because there happens to be, you know, resulting from the mid-19th century famine, a huge and increasingly well connected diaspora in America, which conveniently is the center of political power. Another kind of difference which I found interesting is that so important was diasporic nationalism that it really influences the nationalism at home. So Korea obviously doesn't get its independence until after the Second World War. But the figures who really shape that are figures who are essentially based in America. And the model of kind of Korean democracy in the Korean Republic very much shapes is shaped by American thinking about democracy. That doesn't really happen in the same case in Ireland. So the Irish-American diaspora is very important in terms of politically lobbying for Irish independence, raising money, supporting the campaign for independence. But they don't actually get to sort of politically control or dominate The nationalist movement in Ireland back home. So it's kind of interesting differences in how all of this plays out which we can kind of root in geography and other political structures. But I suppose the overall point I would make in terms of why these parallels are interesting is in the historiography in Ireland there was a tendency to sort of see what the Irish were doing as perhaps more original or more distinctive or more innovative than it probably was. I mean I think probably the combination of declaring a government having a very sophisticated international diplomatic and propaganda effort, and then rooting that also in a kind of a guerrilla armed campaign. There probably was something distinctive to that in Ireland, but so much of what Irish Republicans do in this period is really being echoed by not just revolutionaries and anti-colonial nationalists, but Republicans across much of the world. Maybe one reason we're surprised by this is because we sort of think about and write about and conceive history, you know, very much in national kind of context. We look backwards and forwards in time, But it's more difficult to kind of look across at how the world is changing. We're less conscious of kind of the contemporaneous than people who live in a moment in time perhaps are.
1: How much of a tyrant really was Julius Caesar? Would we have ever stood a chance against the first dinosaurs? And did Helen of Troy really have the power to launch a thousand ships? Well, you can expect all of this and more from the Ancients on History Hit. Join us twice a week, every week, as we explore some of the greatest moments of our ancient past. Subscribe to the Ancients wherever you get your podcasts.
0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Well, Fergal, one thing that fascinates me here is that I can fully buy the idea of you know, Wilson's new age of self-determination really pushing for the emergence of these revolutionary movements around the world that may not be linked in terms of their own internal ideology, but they're certainly sparked by that progressive push. But to what extent does that start to have an impact on where the rubber meets the tarmac? This is, after all, a violent struggle on the island of Ireland. It is a guerrilla war, to what extent does this broader political support start to have some real world tactical, strategic, operational impact? You mentioned, of course, about much later on how Gaddafi steps in as a uh, a kind of a leader of the, the post colonial movement around the world and supplies both money and arms to the IRA. That's well documented, infamous moment, but do we see that during this earlier period? This is a difficult question because part of the answer to this
2: is in understanding how political consciousness shifts in this period. Things that seemed unrealistic before the First World War seem possible after the First World War. And it's difficult to go back to the sources and to sort of find evidence of how this is happening. I can give you some specific examples though. If you look at the nineteen eighteen election campaign in Ireland and Sinn Fein have a manifesto. The manifesto is essentially saying vote for us instead of the old, you know, imperial nationalist moderate party. Vote for us. If you give us a mandate we will go to the Paris Peace Conference and we will secure independence. Now of course that doesn't happen so most of these nationalist movements for self-determination across imperial contexts are disappointed but the point is that it gives them an actual mass kind of support base and then The fact that they're not met with their demands being conceded, in a sense, creates a kind of moment of radicalisation. I mean, one of the things I'm struck by is that in 1918 and early 1919, the Republican movement for independence is genuinely very much seized the way forward as being part of a political strategy. You know, they go to the Paris Peace Conference. If that doesn't work out, they lobby America and so on, but they mount this kind of international propaganda campaign. And it's only after they're unsuccessful at Paris that you begin to get the escalation of the guerrilla warfare at home. Now, at that point, you might go, "Okay, all this international global thinking is all well and good, but actually it hasn't achieved independence. So now we're back to military factors. But again, I would argue the difficulty that Britain faces isn't the loss of very small numbers of troops through guerrilla warfare. You're looking at dozens, hundreds only dying, 1919, 1920, 19, and in comparison to the enormous fatalities that were taken in 1918. So it's not really about the levels of violence. There's no sense that Republicans can militarily mount some kind of formidable campaign, push the British out of Ireland. Rather, the role of guerrilla warfare and the armed struggle is a little bit akin to the later troubles. It's a kind of armed propaganda, which draws the eyes of the world upon what's happening in Ireland. So Britain finds it difficult to suppress. The Republican campaign is well-organised. Guerrilla warfare is a very difficult strategy to kind of suppress. But as they become more draconian, as they raise, for example, black and tans and other kind of ill-disciplined, essentially kind of these paramilitary terror against the paramilitary threat that they're facing... As they do that, they make some grounds in terms of suppressing republicanism, but they're losing the war in terms of the international propaganda struggle and the international moral dimension. So as soon as the black and tans go into action, they start burning down centres of towns. And this is international news in the same way that Easter 1916 had been very widely covered. This becomes a kind of a huge story and and Britain's kind of reputation is being kind of tarnished internationally. So again, it goes back to this point of what is the pressure that violence puts the British state under in Ireland? I think it's a moral and a propaganda and a political pressure. Obviously, there's got to be some kind of settlement of sorts, and that's also shaped by a different set of international factors that we might touch upon. But I think the mistake that we make in thinking about the War of Independence, and this probably applies to a lot of other kind of conflicts, is thinking about it as a war, as a military campaign, rather than... The fact that violence is just one element of a political strategy which is intended to create discomfort to the imperial power and to push it into basically providing a more generous political settlement than it wishes to and so that's an important part of the context You know, Britain was always to some extent disengaging from Ireland with the promise of home rule. The purpose of Republican violence was to basically win sufficient independence to achieve complete separation from the British state and to be able to exit the British Empire. So that's the argument is around quite a narrow kind of range of factors in that sense. It wasn't about Britain wasn't fighting to remain in Ireland, they were fighting to leave Ireland on terms that would secure its imperial power and reputation, particularly in terms of how the Irish conflict would be seen across the empire.
1: You see, that's really interesting, because if we look at this history as kind of historical stepping stones, and we say that the First World War and that rise of the American moment starts to inspire revolutions in Ireland and in Korea, then can we look at the Irish Revolution and see beyond that if it starts to inspire other revolutionary movements around the world? Because you say it starts to get picked up internationally in the press, in the media. Is it something that we can directly link as being a kind of catalyst for the growing end of empire?
2: Yeah, I think so. I'm always a little bit careful how I answer this question because there is a kind of a tendency which I think relates to the national focus of histories, historians and how we work to sort of over exaggerate the importance of a particular struggle. And so a part of me thinks it's more important to answer this question by looking at how Irish Republicans represent a much broader shifts that are taking place. But I think Irish Republicans are probably one of the most high profile and one of the most relatively successful examples of this shift that's taken place in 1919. So if we go back to our Korean analogy, for example, or if you look at some of the other parallels, such as India, it takes decades more for full independence to be achieved. So I think the Irish revolutionary effort to win freedom is very global, and it points to the kind of the global character of how nationalism is developing in this post-war moment. It rests on, one, a claim to national sovereignty and that claim is made to an international audience. It rests on the mobilisation of international political opinion, most notably through the diaspora, but also through the cultivation of other international solidarities. So there's quite strong links are forged between the Irish and the Indians and the Egyptians and so on. And not in Ireland because they're not all those groups aren't there, but in places like Paris and London and New York and the other international kind of hubs, including within the empires
1: themselves. So these kind of unofficial diplomats that are around the world doing the political bidding of a, a hopefully independent island for the future, these are the de facto ambassadors?
2: Absolutely, yeah. So the empires themselves are these multinational, international, cosmopolitan entities which make these links possible. So that's one strand of what's happened that there is this kind of revolutionary strategy which is predicated on an international outlook But I think the other kind of strand is the global nature of power and how power operates and how power is kind of conceptualised is shifting. So in a sense, Republicans here are making their own future by establishing an Irish government and mounting a guerrilla campaign. But they're doing so within the context that they don't really control, but they very skillfully and opportunistically respond to. And that goes back to the collapse of empire and Wilsonianism and those kind of international factors, which are at work. And really, I think they force Britain to come to terms with political reality that national self determination is increasingly seen as the legitimate form of political rule upon how power must rest. And quite interestingly, and this is towards the tail end of the First World War, after Wilson makes his 14 point speech, France and Britain acknowledge that government must operate through consent, which of course they don't really mean because. And this is a kind of a messy political period because after the First World War, the British and French empires expand to their greatest extent ever. But they're forced to adopt a kind of a range of strategies and coin new terminologies to essentially justify imperial power in a different way. So across the Middle East, for example, we have mandates set up in which there's some kind of notion that imperial power is simply resting until the local inhabitants can reach a level where they they form their own government. And obviously, there's quite an important racial element to how different countries and different peoples are treated differently. And I think that helps to explain that notion of how the victorious or successful empires are reconfigured to take account of the new legitimacy of democracy helps to explain what happens in Ireland. Because, of course, Ireland doesn't achieve its independence Britain absolutely refuses to allow a republic because to allow a republic in Ireland, you know, potentially be giving up the ghost in the British Empire, we, you know, opening a whole host of problems in places like Egypt, which is pretty much in a very similar position to Ireland. It's being offered very similar kind of political settlements in the same period. And it would encourage the Indians and so on. So what you get in Ireland is a kind of a messy compromise in which the outcome is an Irish free state. Ireland is given the status of a dominion like South Africa or Australia. But, you know, crucially... Unlike those dominions, it's not made of people who see themselves as part of a kind of an Anglo community. It's an imperial status which is essentially forced upon the Irish as the necessary requirement for getting a more generous measure of independence. So it's a kind of a messy scenario. So it's not like Ireland frees itself from one band from empire either in this period, but it's ahead of the rest of the pack. And interestingly, in the 1940s and 1950s, when decolonization becomes a much more international and global kind of phenomena. Quite a few countries in Asia and Africa do look to Ireland. They look to this revolutionary period as an example of how you can mount a very formidable campaign against a, a more politically and militarily superior part. But also they're really interested in how in the 1920s and 1930s, Ireland makes peacefully that journey from being basically you know, given an element of independence within an empire to a journey of full independence. And it's kind of the chronologies here are quite interesting. Post-First World War, you have these revolutionary movements which don't achieve all of what they set out to do, but they achieve fairly generous self-government measures. I'm thinking about Ireland, for example. Egypt would be another example. But it's not actually until the post-Second World War, around the late 1940s, that you see republics emerge in places like Ireland, India, Korea, and so on, when you've had a further kind of ebbing of the tide of imperial power. So again, thinking about the global is useful in seeing some of these connections because there's a tendency to sort of explain independence as being primarily the result of a very formidable campaign mounted in Ireland. And, you know, you can see the attractions of that. But I would see Ireland, like all kind of small nations, it's kind of bobbing on the tide of wider international imperial shifts in power. And to a certain extent, all you can do is respond as astutely and strategically to the possibilities that exist at any given time. So if you were to ask me the difference between why were Republicans successful in 1919 when multiple attempts to win freedom in the 19th century and the 18th century had been unsuccessful, I think the main reason... Although there was a very formidable campaign it mounted in Ireland, the main reason is just the international political context had changed and it was no longer possible for a more powerful nation to suppress democratic movements for freedom in the way that it had been before.
1: Well, Fergal, thank you so much. It's been fascinating to learn about how the First World War and President Wilson stoked this fire of the Irish Revolutionary Period and how that in itself has gone on to have all these marked impacts around the world. You have to tell us where can we read more about this project you've been working on? The book that I'd really like to mention today,
2: because it's just come out recently, is The Irish Revolution, a global history. It's edited by Patrick Mannion and myself, and it's published by New York University Press and uh, it's widely available at all good bookshops and on the internet. So I encourage anybody who wants to find out more to look there. And I should mention again, just to reiterate, it's an edited book with 12 different contributors who look not just at the Republican and the revolutionary aspects of this, but also imperial and diasporic and cultural aspects of the shifts that are taking place at this time.
1: And do you think the fact it's published by an American press shows that enduring interest in America for the relations of Ireland?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm constantly struck by parallels, even with recent events. I mean, if you look at all the political difficulties there have been around Brexit, I mean, there's the potential for Ireland as a small country to end up you know, in a really bad position in terms of Britain's exiting from that European community. And one of the factors which has really aided the Irish government's effort to sort of exert some kind of impact on how Brexit plays out in Northern Ireland is, again, that American relationship and the Biden government. So it's quite remarkable how the diasporic and the international elements, what an important role they've played in shaping kind of Irish politics not just now and the 20th century, but indeed going back to the late 19th century. Yeah, there are a lot of parallels, I think, in terms of how the Irish have used a kind of soft, diasporic political power to strengthen their political negotiating case
1: internationally. I think Biden was asked to do an interview with the BBC and he turned around and shouted the BBC... I'm Irish, and then walked off. So I think that probably sums up some of the state of affairs. Fergal, thank you so much for your time. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast.
2: Great, lovely to talk to you. Thanks for the interview, James.
1: Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at historyhitww2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes.